gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. Sorry, I just wanted to, that was awesome. Sorry. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into, into eternal life." This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you are speaking to us. We pray that we would be mindful of what you're doing to us in our work as we minister to the least of these. May the meditations of our, of our hearts and the words of our mouth be ever pleasing to you. Our Father, in Christ we pray, amen. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. There you go. Hi. Um, Here, I'll come this way. Thanks for coming up. I'm Matthew, in case you guys don't know that. So glad. Thank you. Okay. All right. There might be some new here. So, Um, so thanks for doing your reciting that Bible verse. Thanks for sitting through the scripture reading. Super proud of you. Here's my question. Are you ready? Uh, I try to bring you up here. We try to make a habit of bringing you guys up here once a month, right? Bring you up in front on a Sunday morning like this. Why is that? What do you think? And you're not getting, you know, this isn't a test, so don't worry about it. Why do you think we're trying to bring you up here once a month for this time? Come on. I see the wheels turning. Go ahead. You have no clue? Oh, I appreciate your honesty. Yes, dear. You're trying to tell other people your Bible verses? That's right. That's why you get up here to do your recitation. Yep, go ahead. Listen to stuff, yes, yes. For the food. What's that? For the food. For the food. I know, and guess what? We usually give out juice boxes, and we didn't have enough because you guys keep growing in size, and so we got to recalculate. All right, what what else? I can't hear her. I can't hear her. That's right. You listen to the Bible verse. So here's so all those great answers. Here here's two reasons. You ready? Two reasons that I want you to know. One, one. Because I want you to understand, I want you to learn, I want you to hear how much Jesus loves you, all right? That he loves you to the bottom. He loves you on your worst day, and he loves you on your best day, the same. You understand? Like, even when you do everything the way you're supposed to for your moms or your dads, he loves you then, and he loves you when you're throwing a fit. But I know none of you throw fits, right? None of you ever get in trouble, right? But I want you to know that, that Jesus loves you more than anybody else in the whole world, okay? The other thing that I want you to learn is this. You matter. You matter to me. You matter to Jesus. You matter to these people, right? That's right. You matter. We see you. We definitely hear you. You know? Yeah. Because here's the... Here's the thing, you ready? You listening? 
Everybody listening? Here's the thing. You know, we just, we just read a, a Bible passage, Matthew 25, for the whole church. It's, it's, it's a very interesting passage, and it's one in which Jesus is talking about when he comes back. When he comes back, he's bringing heaven to earth. He's bringing heaven down. And when he does, he's going to congratulate. He's going to be welcoming the people that love him and trust him. And what's interesting about that is he does not thank them for how fast they run or how, or how high they can jump or how, how good of grades they get in school. That's not what he congratulates them for. What he congratulates them for is how kind and loving they've been to people. And so here's what I want you to remember. Even when you feel little or small, if you ever feel overlooked, if you ever feel like somebody doesn't see you or somebody doesn't recognize you, Jesus does. And the other thing is this. Some of you are in school, right? When you're in school, when you're in school, when you're in school and when you're with your friends and you're hanging out with your friends, I want you to learn to notice if somebody seems overlooked, like somebody's not being included, or like somebody might be sad, and I want you to care about them, because Jesus, that's the way Jesus is. Make sense? Yes? Yes? So do that. Practice it this week, you know? Practice it this week. So the next time, you know, mom, mom or dad don't want to play with you or bring you a snack, you can say, read Matthew 25. That is ridiculous. I know it is ridiculous. Don't do that. I'm just teasing you. Okay, I'm going to pray for you. Can I pray for you? Yes? 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 All right? And then you guys can head back. You ready? I'm going to pray. Father, thank you so much for these little brothers and sisters of ours, these little brothers and sisters that we love so dear that you've given to us. We are so thankful for them. We're thankful for the men and women that they're going to grow up to become, that you are doing a work that we can't always see, but we trust your plan that it is good, and we trust that you're going to give us the courage and the wisdom uh, to help them navigate life. Thank you so much for them, Father. They have been such a blessing, and they will continue to be so. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. Head back. Sorry. Okay. Um, Before, um, before I get in to kind of our message this morning, I do just want to take some time, because I'm sure many of you have felt this this week. Um, it's like, I just want to take a moment to pray for the world and for Ukraine. Um, I understand that in some ways we feel removed from that, you know, and I, understandably so, and, and then in, in some ways, and I think in light of the fact that we've been doing a series for the last seven weeks on the least of these, thinking about how Jesus notices and he, he's, he's attentive and he's compassionate towards those at the bottom, I think you can't help but, you know, look at the news, look at some of that. And, and uh, be filled with a sense of, of, of compassion and a sense of worry, maybe. And so I just want to pray for them, because it's just a strange reality, right, for you and I to walk through Home Depot or Target with our, our Starbucks um, with ease, while some people at the same time, like brothers and sisters in Christ, because, you know, there are Christians in Ukraine, <laughs> And while brothers and sisters, like while we're doing that, they're literally fleeing and hiding for their lives. Like that's a strange reality. And, you know, I was thinking all week about how in Psalm 2, the psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, quote, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
It's a really old story, <laughs> this idea of power and money and land and the, the way leaders plot um, and it destroys people's lives. It's a very old story. And um, it's unfortunate that it continues to play itself out. And so let us just stop to, for a moment to pray. There is solidarity within the Christian church, even when it's people that we just don't know personally. Um, it's one faith, one baptism, one spirit. So let us just, just take a moment to pray for them. Um, Father, it, it is with great sadness that the world continues to rage and we build weapons and we hurt each other. And I am absolutely confident, Father, that it grieves you and um, there will be a recompense for what we do to each other. There just will be. And um, I want, Lord, we ask and we lift up our our brothers and sisters that love you, that, that, that follow you, that are, that are reading the same words that we're reading, that are trying to figure out the gospel and apply it to their lives, in their context, in their culture, and unfortunately in their land and in their space, um, their lives are feeling threatened. And there's not a whole lot, Lord, that we feel like we can do about that except pray to the one who holds everything together. You hold it all together. And so we pray for protection for these people. We pray for wisdom as they navigate really complex issues. Um, and we pray for peace um, on how to love their kids and their neighbors well in the midst of a, of a horrible conflict. Thank you, Father, um, that we can call out to you and that we can trust that you hear us and um, that you'll not only respond to that, but you'll also respond in us as we remember to pray for your kingdom to come to earth, because apart from that, we are doomed. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Shifting gears now, thank you for that, um, for that time. Um, for many years now, I, I have made a little book uh, by Eugene Peterson, Pastor Eugene Peterson, uh, the contemplative pastor. I've made that book kind of just like a training manual for me in a lot of ways. I, call, I think of it that way, on how to, how to do this work as a pastor. Uh, I only, you know, because reality is there's just no way to fully prepare for doing the work of pastoring. And so I've always just kind of kept that book always around. I've got multiple copies of it. I've read through it many times. I always reference it. Um, it's just, a, it's just a, um, a book that helps instruct me in how to think about the church and about the role of the pastor in your lives. And it's been, it's, it's been so life-giving to me. One, of the, one particular word that I have revisited many, many times over the years, um, that in many ways has shaped my approach to you, is this. He says this, uh, people don't feel they are very good at the Christian life. They are apologetic and defensive about their faith. A feeling of inadequacy is characteristic of adolescent life. When a person is growing rapidly on all fronts, physical, emotional, mental, he or she is left without competence in anything. Life doesn't slow down long enough for him to gain a sense of mastery. The teenager has a variety of devices to disguise this feeling. He can mask it with braggadocio, submerge him in a crowd of peers, or develop a subcult of language and dress in which he maintains superiority by excluding the larger world from his special competence. That feels so familiar to me. The variations are endless. The situation is the same. The adolescent is immature and therefore inadequate. And he is acutely self-conscious about this inadequacy. This is exactly what the pastor meets in people of all ages in the church. They feel they aren't making it as Christians. This is a bit of surprise because in the past, the Christian church has more often had to deal with the Pharisee, the person who feels he achieved adequacy long ago. People today are much more apt to be uneasy and fearful about their Christian identity. Now, I know... I, I'm very, I was raised in the church. Um, I was raised a pastor for a dad. Um, I know the world, most of the world, and many in the church feel like the church is full of Pharisees, right? 
What most people hate about the church is the fact that it's full of, quote, hypocrites. Um, it's full of the Pharisee, the AKA self-righteous know-it-all hypocrites that are destructive and abusive at worst, and at best just quarrelsome, you know, they're just quarrelsome about doctrine and getting it right. And they can just be a real drab to be around, you know, because it's like the doctrine police. You don't want to get it wrong because you don't want to look like you don't know what you're talking about or that you're not somehow Christian. We argue over practices and traditions. We argue over how to interpret the, this text. There's just so much. And so all, I know that. And believe me, I don't want to dismiss the fact that the wider church is still plagued by many Christian uh, elitisms, right? There's a whole lot of that. There's a whole lot of elitism in the church that I wish would go away. But I've come to believe what Pastor Eugene wrote, by and large, even in a church like this one, um, I sense a lot of unease in people's sense of Christian maturation and inadequacy. Like underneath, I think many of us, maybe all of us, feel very uneasy. I don't know if you share it with people, but I think you feel it inside. I pick up on a more unease of where we are more than I pick up on self-righteous know-it-allism. And sure, sometimes the inadequacy ends up posing as like confident religious experts. I've seen it, even in here, and I know that that takes place. But all of that's on the surface, man. And honestly, if you actually have a little bit of prolonged curiosity with people and you drill down and you dig in, you'll find something else. You'll find shame and fear. You'll find that people actually are worried and they have these feelings, they have these nagging feelings of this. The way I would say it is like this, gosh, I just wish, or I, I thought I would be further along by now. I thought I'd be further along now, but I'm, you know, that I am at 25 or 35 or 45 or 65, whatever your age. And by the way, just pastors are not exempt from these feelings. Let me just f like fully, like, Many pastors, if I speak to many of them, they struggle with the gap between what they know to be true about God and what they actually feel like they're experiencing. So they're not exempt. Now, I'm not sure where this hypothesis of mine lands with you, but I bring it up because the passage before us today that we read, which is a judgment passage, which I know usually perks everybody up, gets everybody a little stirred up, you know, anytime you read about heaven and hell. And the fact that people are going to be separated, it's just no way around it, right? Like, it's just, oh, it's a good one to pick the day we brought up kindergartens, right? <laughs> Welcome to the faith. Yeah. Well, we not lie to kids. There's just no point in lying to them. But the, the, the passage like this can, can drive us, I think, and, and kind of further drive this kind of Christian performance anxiety that you are struggling with and that I struggle with at times, this, this, am I doing it good enough? So Jesus here is giving this last bit of teaching, at least according to Matthew, before he goes right into his betrayal, his crucifixion. It's the last thing. I mean, you know, it's like if you do the arc of Matthew, if you look at that arc, it's like he, he calls his disciples, he Matthew gives a sword that he's going around preaching the kingdom, repent because the kingdom is at hand, and then he launches with the Beatitudes on the hillside. And then this is the end. This is the last bit. So in some ways, you could say that Matthew's Jesus is this Jesus that begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then he ends his teaching by saying, they're sheep and they're goats. You know, this kind of brackets, you know, Matthew's version of Jesus, the way he wants us to understand Jesus. So he's giving, he's giving this last word, this last bit of teaching before his crucifixion, and he offers a set of parables uh, on the judgment of what to expect, of what it's going to be like. Um, in part, it's about what is at the end, and then in part, 20, probably halfway through 24 into 25, what we read is kind of like, what do we do in the midst of waiting? Like, how do you wait well while you wait for this judgment? And so he's giving this kind of parabolic description of how we hold, um, how he will hold the whole world accountable. I mean, that's really what it is, right? There's no way around it. I'm not going to try to minimize it or, or somehow bypass it. This is what it is. It is about the reality of accountability with the, the God of the universe. And he's going to hold people, the entire world, the nations, the whole world, 
accountable for who they are and what they have centered their lives around. And when you do a plain reading of the text, which we just did, like, you know, and maybe for some of you it was familiar, maybe it's the first time you've ever come across it, but if you do a plain reading of the text, it sure seemed like Jesus is saying that our salvation, right, our, our relationship with God and our, de- our ultimate destiny, you know, our deliverance, that's what that word salvation means, uh, that it sure seems like what Matthew's Jesus is saying. <laughs> you know, Jesus is saying that your salvation, my salvation, is determined by our works. Right? In other words, how well did we perform loving acts for people? That's the criteria. Are you in or are you out based on your performance? Now, first off, uh, to be clear, I'm going to do a couple little careful nuances here. To be clear, I don't think Jesus is offering a comprehensive and exhaustive list of to-dos in this. As if he's saying, this is all I expect. Feed hungry people, give thirsty people a drink, show hospitality to strangers, clothe people who need clothing, visit sick people, uh, visit people locked up in prison. Full stop, done. That's it, right? I I don't think that that's what Jesus is doing. This isn't a, a line of parabolic teaching. And so there's figures of speech, there's metaphors. He's kind of, what he's doing is he's summarizing. I think he's generalizing. I think he's summarizing, he's trying to give a summary version of what the righteous person's life looks like. And I'm more on that in a minute, okay? Secondly, not only is it not just like, it's not a comprehensive, exhaustive list, and this is, I think, even more important, I don't think Jesus is confused, nor do I think Jesus is trying to confuse us with everything else that the Bible teaches about our salvation, including what Jesus himself said. I'll give you an example. John 6, 38-40, Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven, pretty straightforward, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It's resurrection for everybody, right? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, that sounds a bit different, Jesus, than what you said in Matthew 25. What do we do with this? This is where you get to these kind of like what they call like hermeneutical forks in your, in your way of reading, and it's like, well, look, if you rip something out of context, you don't hold it into the greater context of the whole, then you miss the point. The Apostle Paul will drive this message home in places like Ephesians. We read it this already, I think, in our liturgy, but Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Again, what do we do with something like Matthew 25. No, make no mistake. I want to be abundantly clear, right? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. This is the basis of our salvation. This is the gospel. This is why the gospel is so wonderful, but so often hard to believe, because the the mercy of it, the grace of it, the gift of it, seems too big, too good to be true. And it disturbs us in some ways. And so as human beings, and particularly in the church, what we do is we sit around and we argue about these doctrines, don't we? There's no way that God is that good, that kind. And so some people avoid Matthew 25. I found it interesting how many preachers I found avoided it. Just not bother getting into the weeds with that one. And some run to it and base their entire lives around this because they want to preach a works thing. So what is Jesus saying then? How do we understand and apply this word from Jesus faithfully? I think many of you already probably know. I think I see it living out in so many of you. But I think the simplest way to put it is this. Jesus is describing the fruit of your salvation, not the root of your salvation. The fruit of your salvation, not... The root of your salvation. The root of our salvation is Jesus crucified and resurrected on our behalf. Right? 
Us believing, trusting in that, and holding on to that is the root of our salvation. The fruit, though, the fruit of the true believer, the fruit of real loyalty to Jesus, is described by Jesus as every day, I think that's important, every day acts of mercy, kindness, and love to people. This is the fruit. And where there is no fruit, the salvation has not taken root. Full stop. Particularly, in context, I think it's important to remember, particularly, and we've seen this for seven weeks, particularly with people at the bottom of society. There's just something particular about that for Jesus. People that might not be able to ever return the favor to you. There's no, and there's no worldly reward for you in it. It's that kind of mercy, that kind of compassion, that kind of mercy. I mean, this is why in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus goes, at, he's audacious to even say, even your enemies, I call you to love them, to pray for them. So it's been the whole point of this series, and this is the last one in the series. So if you hate this series, you're good now. We'll be done here soon. But the whole point of this series, Jesus in the Least, is to show us that unlike the people of the world, Jesus loves the least of these in this world. That's so much of what we see in the Scripture. He loves the poor. He loves the lost. He loves the left out. He loves those who are overlooked. He loves the children. He loves the elderly, he loves the sick, he loves the poor, he loves the people that are stuck, he loves the people that are depressed and can't seem to figure it out, he loves the anxious, he loves them. While they annoy us or we dismiss them, he loves them. He loves people that are covered in guilt. He loves people that are just inundated with shame because of their past, and we avoid them because they make us feel nasty and dirty, so we don't want to be around them. But he loves them. It is not the healthy that he came for. It is the sick. It's what he said. And he fully expects and even anticipates that his true followers, those that claim him as Christ, Christ is Lord, my king, your king, he says those, you, you, he fully anticipates that his true followers will, will develop gradually, maybe, over time, I, I grant that, the same kind of heart, that, that this will happen to them, that true believers gradually absorb a different identity, the identity that Paul himself proclaimed in Ephesians 2.10, which is the part that all, you know, some people forget to read after they read verse 8 and 9 where he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the core question for every single one of us who claim Christ as our primary identity. The question I want resonating in our hearts as we leave the series. Has the grace of God Has the grace of God, the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not Christ died for us once we cleaned our act up. While we were messing up royally, while we were failing, while we were dead in our sin, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Has that grace... In the realities of it, has it come to bear in my life, in your life, in real, tangible ways? In other words, are we becoming different over time? It's funny how we complicate things. Are we different? It's John Newton wrote at the end of his life, right? I'm not who I want to be. I'm not who I will 
be yet, right? But I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I was a man who was sailing over and buying slaves and selling them. He changed. And his life reflected it over time. And he knew that. Jesus is not giving us a to-do list for us to follow to earn his love and salvation. That's not what he's doing in Matthew 25. But Jesus is telling us that those who inherit the kingdom of heaven will be markedly different than those who will be cast out. And if that puts you on the edge of the seat, that's okay. That's okay. Jesus is very comfortable saying things that make me uncomfortable. And the difference, the difference between these people will not just be that they claim Jesus is Lord, but that they, the, the claim that they were making that Jesus is Lord humbled them over time. It brought them low, not puffed them up. It brought them low over time, and it created in them this, this heart for mercy, this, this heart for compassion, this, this heart that winces when they see people hurting, no matter what they've done to deserve it. That they soften over time, not harden over time. That they get a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. This, this, this is the reality. They, they, they take on this loving posture towards people, particularly people in need. So again, I don't, I, I don't think that this teaching of Jesus should thrust us into anxious uh, religious Christian workaholism. Please, don't let it do that. But I do think it should wake us up to how gracious, and I think that this is so fascinating about this, this, end, this ending uh, teaching for Jesus, it should wake us up to how gracious and motivating Jesus' description of judgment is. Look closely and carefully, again, at what Jesus says. So Jesus is gathering, imagine it, right? All of the nations, I think that's the world, but someday he's going to gather everybody. I, I, I don't know what arena that's going to be in. Uh, like, you know what I mean? I don't know what that looks like. That's not the point. The point is, is he is bringing everybody together for a reckoning. And then the king will say to those on his right, this is after he separates people. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they're, they're surprised, right? They're not surprised that they did these things. They, 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 I, they, they look at him and they say, when did, when, wait, when did we see you hungry and feed you or, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now here's the thing, and here's what I want you to try to remember as we leave this passage. He didn't say, I was hungry and thirsty and naked and you fixed my poverty. He didn't say, I was a stranger and you made it so I never felt left out again. He didn't say, I was sick and you healed me. He didn't say, I was in prison and you freed me. Oh, no. No, no, no. He, he expects us to follow him and his heart, but he never expects us to somehow be something other than human-sized with human limitations. What I find, and I get it, a passage like Matthew 25 gets us worked up a bit and we feel like, oh goodness, I don't know if I've been nice enough to, to poor people or I don't know if I've, if I've really poured myself out enough. And I get that, and I get that. But I also think sometimes we just miss, we miss the gracious simplicity of what Jesus' expectations are. It's the church that complicates it. Jesus is so simple He's so accessible. Who can't give their life to this? I can't fix poverty. I can't perform miracles. But can I do everyday stuff? 
Can I change my heart in some way to actually begin to care about people that are stuck? Actually, when you look carefully, you realize that Jesus is saying, my righteous ones simply take the hurts and struggles of others seriously, and then they do something about it. The righteous people Jesus welcomes are the people that were moved at the heart when someone is in need, and they inconvenience and sacrifice themselves to ease the burden in some way. You see, I think we tend to think it's only the great Bible teachers, or we think it's the, the great healers that are out there, or the great strategists in the church or the parachurch that can model things out and build big programs and do all this amazing work. You know, we see these men and women in the kingdom of God here on earth, right? We see these people as the major players in God's kingdom. But hear me. If anything, Jesus said it's the big showy miracles and people that can do all the flashy stuff that sometimes can be the most suspect. Lest, <laughs> lest we forget what Jesus said himself in Matthew 7, this is verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Like, I pass theological examinations. You should have heard. You should have heard my evangelistic speeches at Applebee's. Lord. I cast out demons. How many of you did that this week? Right? It's a pretty big deal. Did mighty works... In your name, Jesus? Like, did, didn't you see the stuff I, I built? It's impressive. And people, I had a lot of followers. And I wrote a lot of books. I did a lot of impressive stuff. And yet Jesus says, and yet I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. So it's... it's the reality is that we are the ones that sometimes confuse it. We are the ones that complicate it. We are the ones that make this weird dichotomy that it's the big stuff. We got to do the big stuff. Jesus expects heart change in all of us who take his gospel seriously. But he is absolutely, and hear me, please, he is absolutely opposed to heaping heavy burdens on us that rob our souls of joy and assurance in his love. You see, friends, Jesus' invitation is not, come to me, come to me, who, who labor and are heavy burdened, and I'll get you busy. I will slam your schedule full. It's not what he said. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, right? Come to me. I'm harsh, and I'm demanding, and I'm really confusing and complicated. I'm going to put you in 25 different programs. You're going to be exhausted. It's not what he said. Jesus didn't say, for my yoke is heavy, and my burden is unsustainable. That's not what he said. That's what the church sometimes does. Jesus says the opposite of all those things, in case you don't know. Come to me. I'll give you rest. Take up my yoke. Learn. You got to learn. You got to train. But it's easy and it's light. I don't want you to be just overwhelmed and filled with anxious performing. You don't have anything to prove. I just want you to take up my life. This doesn't mean that we never get tired. It doesn't mean that we aren't tested and tried at times in our sacrifices. But it does mean that we can trust we have a God that knows our limitations and loves us in spite of them. So let me just speak as I close this up practically to us as a church as we seek to apply this, because we're leaving the series, as I said. In light of these teachings of Jesus, we don't, we don't want to be, my heart, the other pastor's heart here, like we don't want to be a complicated, heavy, burdened church. We, we seek so desperately, we, like we really desire to be a simple, humble, loving church. 
Deep theology for us isn't just getting the doctrines right or using all the correct language. It's learning, yes, it's praying and serving our way deeper into love, not exhaustion, not anxiety, not fear. Without a community-wide, I'm lumping us all together, without a community-wide drift towards acts of mercy, kindness, and love, for, for God's sake, what good are we? Who cares what truths we proclaim? Who cares that we have it all right? If we are just awful to be around, or we turn our eye from people that, that hurt, loving people, even our enemies, as, you know, as Jesus loves them, loving them for their own sake, not ours, keeps our truths from puffing us up into prideful, dead people. We will just have dead orthodoxy. And this is why, as a church, that we constantly urge you to, to serve both inside this community, right, whether that's in groups or on a Sunday morning. We urge you to serve in this community and beyond it in our, in our mercy ministry. Right? It's why we're trying to build things like Care Portal, helping kids in our, in our school district and things like this, like the kids that are in need. Like we're trying to facilitate that connection point between you and them. It's why we're doing it. And it's why we're constantly saying, you got to know other Christians. We don't do this. Please hear me. We don't do this to heap heavy burdens on you or complicate your life with Jesus. For goodness sakes, the world and its prescribed pace is doing enough of that for you. Rather, we're trying to keep the main things the main things. Love for Jesus, love for each other, and love for the least of those in our society. It's simple. No matter who they are or what they've done, it's the real test and purpose of our existence. Now, at the risk of confusing us, I, I will briefly mention that one of the debates of Matthew 25 among Bible scholars and Bible nerds, so if that's you, you're like, thank you, It'll take a little bit of time, because maybe you have an ESV, we use ESV uh, translation, and, and, and maybe you have an ESV study Bible, and if you look at Matthew 25 and you get down, you might be like, wait a second. Here's, so I'll reference it. Some, when you get into Matthew 25, the issue becomes, who is Jesus describing when he says, who, you know, who are the least of these, my brothers and sisters, that Jesus is referencing? Now, this has gone on and on for centuries. So some say it's the universal poor and needy in the world. Some say that in context, that Jesus is referring specifically to the hurting or overlooked Christians. And that reason for that, the argument for that, is that everywhere else in the Gospels, every time Jesus uses terms like brothers and sisters, he is referencing his disciples. So, in other words, that what this is about for them is that Jesus is showing deep solidarity for everyone um, that claims him, that he deeply identifies himself with Christian people, anyone who believes, trusts, and follows him. Now, I won't tell you where I land, but here's the thing. Each side of the debate makes a good case, but in the end, honestly, the debate is not worth getting hung up on. Because when we keep the whole Scripture together, which is what we should do, that's how you should read your Bible, when we keep the whole of Scripture together, we realize that Jesus expects us to love and care for both those inside the church and those outside the church. There's plenty of evidence in the Scripture, like Amos. Go read the book of Amos if you need to understand how God feels about God's people when God's people don't treat the poor with love. Here's just a quick word out of Amos 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. This is prophetic teaching. This isn't me. Hear this word. He's talking to God's people. You cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, quote, bring that we may keep drinking. I could go on and on. 
but it's, there's a whole lot of really critical things said to God's people because they neglect or ignore the poor. But it's also true that you'll see Jesus himself in places like John 13, 35, stressing how vital it is that we, the Christian church, love and care for each other, right? How will the world know that you are my disciples by the way you love each other? And Paul will say it like this. Paul pulls it all together for us. Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, right, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There it is. You use Paul to you know, try to help keep making sense of Jesus. So when we keep it all together, we realize real heart change in Christians is love for Jesus, love for other Christians, and love for the least of these, whoever they are, right? Faith, hope, and love. This is the foundation of who we are as a people. Now, my assumption that is in somewhere in that right there, that calling, you'll likely find something worth reflecting on and allowing yourself to be challenged in. So here's what I would say. Ask yourself this. Are you tethered to other Christians? Because some of you are like, I love the social justice. I love these humanitarian acts. I'll serve. I'll do whatever it takes at the food pantry or in care portal. Awesome and amen. And you wouldn't be dare caught in a community group because you can't stand Christians. Right? So are you tethered to other Christians? Are you keeping your attention on on where and how you might serve them, like Sundays, like this, and outside of Sundays. You have to be around them. You have to. You have to know them in some way if you're going to serve them and love them and be merciful to them. Because you can't just be like, well, I'll just pray for them in a distance, those hypocrites. Well, I, well, I will be over here in my little Bible study doing the real work of God. No. No. But also, also, are you tethered in some way to the poor? Are you aware of what it's like for them and, and how you might ease their burdens? This is why we've made our mercy ministry a core ministry of our church. It's not like some side thing that we do. It's one of the core values of who we are. For many of us, if we're not careful, we'll drift. We'll drift into this kind of Christian cul-de-sac I'm, if some of you live in a literal cul-de-sac, I'm not criticizing you. God bless you. But I think, figuratively, we can drift over time into a Christian cul-de-sac that is so distant from poor people. We, we just lose complete sight of it. We have no idea who we've become. And we become blind or callous to the hardness of our own hearts. And we just aren't really that kind and merciful anymore. We're too busy consuming I often think of how we Christians need the poor as much, if not more, than they need a helping hand from us. I need the poor. I need exposure to them. I need to see them. I need need to see the, the things they're up against so that I soften. Some Christians are so hard and 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 terrible to be around because they're so removed from poor people or from people that don't vote like them, or who have different color skin of them, or whatever it is, and and, and they just are blind to it. You can't help but not be changed when you're around people at the bottom. You can't leave unchanged by it. I need them in my life. We need them as a church. We need to figure out a way to stay tethered to the poor in our city. And to Because conf- I need to confront my endless consumerism and my endless desire for more. Because it's when I get around people that are at the bottom, I go home and I'm like, why do I even need this crap? You know? Why am I obsessing over this stuff? This is not where I'm headed. This is not the destiny of my life. I recently read a story of the president of Whitworth College, it's a Christian college out west, Dr. Bill Robinson, sharing one of the most important lessons he ever learned in his life and how that happened at the state penitentiary in Stillwater, Minnesota. 
when he arrived there to begin regular work with the inmates at this prison, the chaplain of the prison took him aside and said, don't forget, Bill, if Matthew 25 is right, you didn't come to bring Jesus to these guys. You came to find him. We pursue the poor not so that we can earn anything from God, but simply because they remind us of our calling. They remind me. They remind us of our direction, that you and I are headed towards love. You are headed towards mercy. You are headed towards Jesus himself. This is the life that he has destined you for, to become the kind of love to which you have been loved with. And so, friends, as we come to the table, as we come to communion this morning, I share that love with you this morning. That's what this is, a reminder of how deeply loved you are, that I share with you what Jesus instructed us to share and proclaim, that this bread represents Christ's body broken for us, and this cup of wine is the cup of the new covenant, a promise in his blood, that he broke himself and he poured himself out for us. Not only so that we could experience his love and his forgiveness, but so that we could change, so that we could soften. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, I pray you take time. You take time to not, not be filled with guilt and shame and fear, right? But not, not to be filled with that stuff, but instead to say, yes, Lord, I want this. Make this true of me. Make this true of me. And he will, I promise you. When we pray things in his name, according to his will, for his kingdom, he does them. He does them. And so if you have questions about any of this, please, you're invited to come up after the service, talk with me or anybody else here that you might know, and we'd love to sort that out with you. All right? We just ask that you don't come take part in communion if you have no, if you have no interest in Jesus. If that's just not your serious confession, your serious reliance, like your this doesn't make sense. But if that's where you are, you're invited, no matter whether you're a member or not, to come forward in a bit. The way we do that here is we take a piece of this bread up here, up here, and dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we give you thanks. And we, we pray that as a, as a church community, we continue to grow in mercy, in kindness, in compassion. Above all, Father, we pray that we grow in love that if our doctrines, our ideas, if our so-called knowledge doesn't lead us towards becoming more loving, then it's just not truth. So give us that ability by your Spirit for us to grow, for us to soften, and for us to become people that reach out to people who are in need, whether that be both inside here and outside. Thank you for your Son. To him be the glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen.